0: Hi there. I'm Michelle Musi, the irreverent, feisty, but irresistible author of Love Capades.
1: And I'm Sally Kaplan, Michelle's partner in crime as her editor and clever co-host on this audio adventure.
0: Welcome everyone to the Love Capades podcast.
1: Welcome to episode 17 of the Love Capades podcast. Last time, we learned about Michelle's deep connection to the land of Oz, Australia. She told us about her many visits down under and her love connections. Then Michelle shared a juicy Love Capade tidbit in Milano, Italy. What can only imagine what she has up her sleeve now. Let's find out.
0: So this chapter is called Love in the Mystical Realm. There are so many types of love. Let me count the ways. There's romantic love, courtly love, lusty love, friend love, parental love, brotherly love, puppy love, enduring love, self-love, and best and rarest of all, unconditional love. I suggest another possibility, what I like to call mystical or spiritual love. This has nothing to do with carnal desire, but rather lives in the sacred space of one's consciousness, a soul place, very private and intimate, where you may know your version of God. I have had more than one instance when I connected deeply with another person in this sacrosanct place. I bring this up because I want to explore all nature of my experience of love and how it has shown up in my life. In all three of the cases I am about to describe, I loved the person in a mystical way. The first is a beautiful being named Michael Paulson. I met him while attending an opening exhibit at an art gallery I often frequented in San Francisco. The gallery owner, whom I knew quite well, suggested I introduce myself to Michael, who was tending bar with a few others to help out that evening. I wandered over to get a drink and instantly knew who he was. Michael was very handsome, but most extraordinary were his riveting blue eyes. Here is when the cosmic connection ignited. I looked into those eyes, and without a word spoken, My attention went directly to his heart space. I knew him already. Of course, I believe we were together in a past life. But even if that isn't your thing, please know that first glance spoke volumes. It was love at first sight, not the romantic kind, but a spiritual variety. Of the spirit, we became instant friends. Michael's story is this, he graduated magna cum laude from the University of Michigan in Norse mythology. Then he went to live in Europe where he became a devotee of Maharishi, following him around the continent. He also became a male fashion model. This lifestyle worked for a number of years, but eventually Michael knew it was time to pursue his calling to be an artist. That and the fact that he was gay prompted him to move to San Francisco, well known for its large and welcoming gay community. By the time we met in the late 1980s, he was already living with another man, and he had already tragically been infected by the AIDS virus. The epidemic was in its initial stages at this point. So treatment for the disease was limited, and its diagnosis was literally a death sentence. Excruciating in every way. Our friendship revolved largely around discussions of spirituality. I was in my Presbyterian deacon mode and was quite rigid in my thinking at that point. Michael was much further along in his spiritual maturity, and used to gently counsel me to be less unbending in my beliefs. We frequently sparred on this topic. In retrospect, I remember his guidance with great fondness, because as I grew up spiritually, his advice shone more and more with the light of truth. Perhaps it's ironic, or even poetic, that the year after his death, I was drawn inextricably into my own Indian guru just as Michael had been years before. He had served as my spiritual guide, loosening my legalistic grip on Christian values so I could be open to the wondrous world of an enlightened being. It was heart-wrenching to witness Michael's ever-failing health. From the moment we met, when he was still utterly gorgeous, until his death in the early 90s, I watched his wellness deteriorate and his suffering increase. Shortly before his death, in one letter, he wrote, You are Ruben's creation, and I am looking more and more like El Greco. I think you are beautiful just the way you are. Don't fret. My friendship with Michael was short-lived, but my love for him is indelible and enduring. I might even say ours was the purest love I've ever known with a man. What a gift. And this prompted me to add a quote from Les Miserables, which says, To love another person is to see the face of God. I love that quote. In the summer of 1992, I took a giant Mother May I step forward on my spiritual path, My friend Joan had been pressing me to accompany her to spend time in an ashram in the Catskill area of New York where her meditation teacher resided. To be honest, I actually thought Jesus would be angry if I were to go. But I followed my curiosity with Michael whispering in my ear from above and signed up for a week of meditation courses. Little did I know how transformative that decision would be. After meeting Gurumayi Chidvalasananda, I came to realize that she and Jesus, and ultimately all of us, emanate from the same divine place and in fact share the identical divine consciousness. Few at any given time on earth are truly enlightened, and to be in the presence of such a being is a great blessing and nearly impossible to describe. I could write another book about it. But for now, let me say this. You know that you are seen and loved unconditionally. The guru perceives your perfection, even if you still live in your imperfection. And it is the most exhilarating, inspiring, healing, hopeful experience one can imagine. My connection to Guru Mai was immediate and profound. Every encounter was full of mystery, magic, even bliss. Nearly every meditation was a mystical joyride full of wonder. Sometimes the meditations would become narratives with twists and turns. This was the case with the well-known Puerto Rican actor Raul Julia. I first saw him at the ashram on August twenty-first, 1993, standing alone, looking rather forlorn. I was familiar with many of his award-winning roles on TV. Suddenly, for no rational reason that I could figure, I became obsessed with him. In waking thoughts, sleeping dreams, meditation events, Raoul was everywhere. I knew he was married, but that didn't stop me from imagining him as my husband. But reality in this world can be very different than that in the mystical realm. And so it was with Raoul. I never actually spoke a word to him, but in meditation, he became very real. One time, I was in a boat with Gourmay as the coxswain, and she invited me to join her. As I sat down, I could see that Raoul, too, was in the boat— This is what I wrote in my meditation journal at the time. Quote, He was sitting behind me and put his arms around me and kissed my neck. It felt divine and very exciting. He continued, You are my next wife. It is my karma to be with you now. And I will never compare you to my first wife. I know this sounds... Absurd. And to this day, I really don't fully understand what it all meant. One psychic reading I had at the time explained it this way You and Raoul are spiritually very connected. He was as aware of your presence as you were of his. You've been together in many lifetimes. He has gone ahead to prepare a place for you to be together. It does not have to be on the physical plane, in the traditional matrimonial sense. But that is why you feel so connected to him now. Shortly after the psychic told me this, Raoul died suddenly at age 54. When I heard of his passing, I was very, very sad. Maybe he had gone ahead to prepare a place for us. I'll have to wait a while to find out. Even for me, this love affair of the mystical variety is bizarre. And while it is a far cry from my myriad romances on the earthly plane, it enriches my experience of love, and for that I cherish it. Now that you know about my deep connection to Guru Mai, I want to circle back and share a love bite about my brother Vic and my godson Matt. To put a provocative exclamation point to describe my relationships with Vic and Matt, here is a very compelling love bite. To help explain why Matt and I are so linked at the soul level, let me tell you a sweet story. When the boys, Matt and his brother Joe, also my godson, were teenagers, I finally convinced their Catholic mother to let me introduce them to Guru Mai, she was going to be in Santa Clara, California, for three weeks at the Christmas time retreat. My brother Vic sweetly agreed to bring them down from the country and drop them off with me. The boys and I spent three days together at the retreat, and the Guru absolutely doted on them in an unprecedented way. Both arriving and departing, Guru Mai spent ten or more minutes actually talking to them. People all around, including me, were astonished because this much attention was very rare. So after the first encounter that night while having pizza at a local restaurant, I asked them what they thought. Matt, 16 years old at the time, said, well, she's certainly a radiant being. Need I say more about his old soulness and our forever connection? And I've always believed I fulfill the job of godmother in the highest possible way by bringing the boys to meet the closest thing on earth to God in the flesh. My third mystic affair of the heart took place in the year 2000 when I went on an astonishing spiritual journey to Egypt, the ancient land of the pharaohs a place filled with temples, treasures, and tantalizing mystery. We were a tribe of almost 20 travelers, mostly meditation comrades of mine. Many of us were first-timers, but several of this band of seekers had been to Egypt before and so knew of the perfect guides for our adventure. Mohammed Nazmi owned Quest Travel, and his right-hand man was Emil Shaker a gifted Egyptologist. The two of them made a charismatic team. They arranged a private tour to the most important sites in Egypt and accompanied us every step of our two-and-a-half-week journey. They were able to open doors closed to most visitors and even get us into sacred places with no other tourists present. Mo, as we called him, was a smart, lovable, industrious, and jovial man whose father had been a high-ranking diplomat with Anwar Sadat. The son had learned many of the diplomatic gifts for diffusing tension and dispelling difficulties. Emile was something altogether different. Raised in Luxor and still residing there with his family, he was a rare mix of passion, earthiness, rebellion, and mischief. But most amazing was his brilliant intuition and ability to read energies. And let me assure you, Egypt is replete with swirling energies, alive and dead, like no place on earth. I was especially susceptible to these forces throughout the trip. I'll never forget when I passed out in Cairo's Egyptian Museum the very first day of our tour. I simply slinked to the floor after taking in way too many ancient vibrations. Emil knew intimately these powerful entities, which we encountered everywhere, and he did his best to keep us all safe from their baser intentions. It did not take long for Emile and me to fall into a magical dance of wonder, a mystical romance continued for many lifetimes that presented itself at the fulcrum of a new millennium in order to further our spiritual awareness and healing. I know that's a mouthful and may seem pretentious, even, but trust me, ours was truly a magic carpet ride. Of all my love capades, This was the most otherworldly and supernatural. Whereas there was a strong sexual attraction, we never acted that out, but kept our relationship on the spiritual plane. Part of the reason for that was Emil's shyness, and he was married after all. I also believe, as the ultimate energy reader, he knew sex would derail us from our mission. Mo kept throwing us together to see if the pheromones would ignite, but the two of us somehow resisted. Instead, Emil took special, tender care of me in the most protective way. One instance of this occurred the day we got to enter the Great Pyramid, otherwise closed to the public, at high noon and spend two hours in the King's chamber at the very top. The interior climb was arduous and up a very long, steep hand ladder. Because I suffer from asthma, this ascent was difficult for me. So Emil took my backpack without a word, making the trip upward doable. The King's is the largest of three chambers inside the Great Pyramid and is made entirely of pink granite, although it was pitch black when we entered. To one side of the space sits a large granite sarcophagus, probably placed there during construction. Each of us took a turn getting inside the eerie coffin and lying down. God knows whose idea that was, but it was sure creepy. Next, we sat for a long shadowy meditation in this sacred chamber. Imagine it. Being in the center of the great Giza monolith at high noon in the year 2000. Surreal. And no doubt, molecule rearranging beyond our knowing. Up and down the Nile, I had mystical experiences at every turn. Some of these were humorous and others were deeply moving. One on the lighter side happened at a gift store in Alexandria. I picked up a troll-like blue mini statue, and before I knew it, the little guy had flown out of my hands, crashing to the floor in a gazillion pieces. Everyone in the shop turned to look. Emil sidled over and explained that Bess, as he's called, is a comical deity Ruling love, joy, and sex. Wouldn't you know it? (laughs) He is much beloved for also being a protector of children. I bought myself a best to bring home, and I'm quite sure he helped inspire me to write a young adult novel about the province of the pharaohs. It still lives in the tomb of my unpublished works. (laughs) Another endearing event happened that made my soul smile. You know how sensitive I've always been about my chubbiness. Well, I'd finally arrived in a land where love handles rule the day. Oh, and the night, too. One afternoon, our trusty guides had arranged for us all to be measured by a tailor who would make us Galabeas the traditional flowing cotton garments worn by most Egyptian men that provide excellent air conditioning for the privates. The next day, Emil took just me to the small stall in the Luxor Market, where the tailor sewed and sold his wares. Together we walked through the bustling, colorful sprawl of commerce until we found our destination. There was barely room for the three of us to stand inside the space. Proudly, the merchant produced the three Galabeas he'd made for me and then said, You are the ideal woman for all Egyptian men. Anyone would gladly pay 1,000 camels for you. Eat your hearts out, all you skinny bitches. <laughs> More affirmation of this super-duper news happened at Emile's own home a few days later. The entire entourage had been invited to have dinner at Emile's house right there in Luxor. It was a triple-decker stucco abode with simple architecture scrunched among other similar structures. The rooftop was an important space where the family gathered to play, even sleep on occasion under the stars. Upon arrival, we were greeted by Emile and his wife, with three rambunctious boys bouncing like Mexican jumping beans in the background. It was a gracious evening with cocktails and a buffet of Egyptian dishes. To this day, I have no idea if Mrs. Shaker was aware of Emile's affection toward me, but out of the blue, she stood in the middle of the large living room and pointed at me. Everyone became paralyzed with curiosity. You, she blurted out, are the beautiful one. What in heaven's name was behind that remark? At the time, I did my best to deflect the awkward attention focused on me. But I've always wondered what motivated that provocative comment. It's one thing to have a man find you full-bodied and beautiful, which I adore, of course. But to have the wife of this same man make such a remark? That's another thing altogether. Another strange thing happened before my fellow travelers and I left Luxor. Of course, we visited the magnificent temple of Luxor, the most beautiful of all the temples I saw in Egypt. It was built by Amenhotep III in 1400 BC when the city was called Thebes, the capital of the ancient kingdom. The huge temple complex is located very near the Nile on its east bank, so it would be easy for the pharaohs to process to and from the river for their ceremonies and celebrations. The front boasts two large monolithic walls with one stately obelisk. Upon entering, you see the grand open-air hypostyle hall with its 32 impressive columns. Further along is the Avenue of Sphinxes and another court, that of Amenhotep himself. At the very back is the birth room and the chapel of Alexander the Great. Tucked in there somewhere is a small cave-like room where the goddess Sekhmet resides. She is the powerful goddess of the sun, war, destruction, plagues, and healing. She's one of the oldest deities as well as one of the fiercest and is depicted with the head of a lioness wearing a sun disc circled by a cobra. No wonder she conveyed power. One very early morning, before the temple was open to the public, and just as the sun was rising, our Pied Piper Emil led our group to the room where Sekhmet hung out. Once inside, he instructed us to form a semicircle around the deity. Each of us was given the chance to go before the goddess and commune with her in whatever way felt right. When it was my turn, I bowed my head and suddenly a resoundingly hearty laugh ricocheted around the cavern. I thought, how weird is this? I also thought it was pretty rude of the group to be mocking me at such a sacred moment. Once outside in the light, I asked who had laughed while I was paying my respects. Each face looked incredulous. They insisted that not one of them had laughed. Emile then pulled me aside and said, It was Sekhmet who was laughing. A rare privilege indeed. Maybe she thought of me as a kindred spirit. Busted by the goddess of war. Oh dear. <laughs> Our journey continued southward to visit the exquisite island temple of the much-beloved goddess Isis at Philae, near Aswan. Isis is known as an all-powerful, all-purpose deity whose influence has spanned thousands of years from the most ancient times to modern day. She's the high priestess of every pantheon of gods, representing creation, mothering, marital devotion, fertility, magic, dreams, all things in the feminine realm. She was so powerful that she outmaneuvered the sun god Ra with her stealthy strength and feminine mystique, becoming the top god in the land. Approaching the island from a small boat, as we did, with its palms, colonnades, and pylons, was like coming upon a splendid mirage that emerged out of the Nile. We disembarked and wandered with captivation through the magnificent complex. At the very end, we entered an open-air arena along the riverbank, where stood a small but charming temple called the Kiosk of Trajan. With the warm air and soft breezes coiling around us, we followed our usual ritual to sit for meditation. I was so moved by the goddess's energy that immediately upon closing my eyes, I broke into a seizure of tears. The sobbing went on for a long time, maybe close to an hour. The emotion was enervating. I've always surmised that this had to do with my challenges around love, marriage, and motherhood, all part of Isis's bailiwick. The crying, I believe, was a kind of karmic restoration bestowed upon me by the goddess. My mystical sojourn with the spirits and our intrepid guide Emil climaxed at our final destination. St. Catherine's Serene Sacred Monastery in the Sinai. While most of the group labored up the famous mountain, I remained in the monastery courtyard where the original burning bush reputedly still grows. There in the silence at dusk, I closed my eyes once more to meditate. In my inner place, a beautiful vision emerged. Guru Mai, in her flowing red robes, sat in the Temple of Philae with Emile and me, both dressed in pure white, at her feet. She blessed the two of us, who had been healers during many lifetimes, in a union of love. It was our turn to be healed. I had many, many blessings during the magical journey to Egypt. Perhaps the most beneficial gift was my mystic affair with Emile, a rare version of love, which further expanded my kaleidoscope of the heart.
1: Michelle, wow, your life is indeed a journey, isn't it? (laughs) I would say and Love Capades is a journey about love. And so much of the episodes you've shared with us are love capades in the outward sense. And this is such an inner part of your journey, even though you traveled far and wide to deepen it. But, but let me just ask you if you can define, I, I can only imagine it's hard to define, but what is mystical or spiritual love to you?
0: There are so many kinds of love, but for me, the mystical spiritual kind Is that interior kind in your most intimate heart space? And for every one of us, it's different. And some of us take it very, very seriously, others not so seriously. But for me, as my life has unfolded, it has become the most prominent and important form of love. And again, it's what I consider to be the eternal component of our existence. And it's quite exquisite, really. Mm
1: -hmm. And it seems like in the three gentlemen that you tell us about here, each of them has that essence, it seems, that goes from feeling of the past when you connect with them to the present power to maybe even something that could happen in the future. I mean, let me just ask you first about Michael. What was it when you first saw him that made you feel a powerful connection, in addition to the eyes?
0: (laughs) (laughs) He was gorgeous to look at. But what was most astonishing about that moment in time, I was immediately drawn into his heart space. He had these gorgeous blue eyes. But I kind of looked at the eyes and somehow zoomed right into his heart. And it was this immediate knowing that I already knew him. Mm -hmm. And sadly, he
1: was gay and had contracted AIDS. And this was in the 80s. So to help our listeners contextualize the time a little bit, what was it like in the late 80s around AIDS?
0: Well, again, this is, you know, and I live close to San Francisco. So this was something that was really emerging on the scene. And it was this mysterious virus that nobody knew anything about. And it was deadly at that time, absolutely deadly, zedescence. And so for those of us who were not in the gay community and probably not going to be affected by the virus, it was still very scary because so little was known about it and it appeared out of nowhere. In a sense, it kind of is a little bit like what we're experiencing now with the pandemic. Although in that epidemic, it was mostly confined to the gay community, but it was still really, really upsetting for everybody because people you knew were dying of this horrible disease.
1: And like you said... At that time, I'm remembering also, it was really deadly. There was no way if you got it, you wouldn't get seriously sick and likely die from it. You know? So here you befriended this beautiful man who you knew had a deadly disease. And there was something you said about you sparred a bit in your spiritual discussions. And you advised us in this episode that you were very rigid in a Protestant way. And he wasn't. In what way were you rigid? That That doesn't quite... Makes sense to me that you were rigid.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I had become a Christian and I had been studying the Bible and I had remembered the famous baptism (laughs) debacle with my family. And I had sort of bought the story that if you were going to go to heaven, you had to accept Jesus as your Savior. And at the time, I believed that because that's what the Bible was teaching, that's what the Presbyterian Church was teaching me. And so when I would discuss spirituality with Michael, he would kind of take exception to that because his experience had gone beyond that belief. And I remember we did spar about it, but it was never an ugly fight or or discussion because he was so evolved spiritually that he gently would nudge me into thinking in a slightly more expanded way. And the irony of that, of course, is that once he died, those things he was trying to teach me became real for me. And I did move beyond the rigidity, the legalistic approach that so many Christians take.
1: Right. He opened you to that. The other thing you said was that it was almost the best experience you've ever had in love with a man, yet it wasn't of the carnal kind. So isn't that ironic?
0: Yeah, isn't that amazing? You know, all these characters that I've known in my life, and for the most part, they were straight men and that I either had carnal affairs with them or wanted to. Here is this gay gentleman whom I totally adored and loved. And there was no question about a carnal relationship. It was a pure giving kind of love that verged on the unconditional, which is, of course, to me, the ideal kind of love. So isn't that strange how this perhaps purest love of all is with a man that I wouldn't have thought about having a relationship physically?
1: Right. So then your friend Joan, she's talking you into going with her to this spiritual re- retreat to meet who ends up being your a personal guru for you. And what was it that made you break out of your Christian mindset and go with her. What was it?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember this very distinctly. So Joan had been bugging me, frankly, about going to some of these events with her guru. And I was just putting my little foot down and saying, no, I have my own way of doing this and I'm not interested. And one day she came over and she had with her the catalog that showed all the courses that were going to be given that summer at the ashram in the Catskills. And I'm flippantly flipping through the pages just to appease her. And all of a sudden, my eyes strike on this description of something called the fire course. And... I mean, it was a cosmic setup. So I'm reading this description, and all of a sudden, this fear I had that Jesus was going to be pissed at me. I mean, <laughs> I really had that feeling. And all of a sudden, my adventurous self emerged, and I kind of got feisty. And I, I said, okay, I'm going to go. I'm just going to go. And that was it. So it's almost like the lure of the adventure
1: more than what ended up happening to you there, right?
0: Well, it was kind of cosmic that moment because I was dead set not to get engaged with this baloney. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, I wanted to be engaged with the baloney.
1: And boy, Uh, looking back, I can only imagine you're glad that you went because what a powerful connection you developed with this spiritual guide. And with Raul Julia, who was also there, who you probably had some past connection to, one thing I wanted to ask you about him was your experience of him. Is it true it was mostly told as a story through meditation, not in person with him? Is that correct?
0: Completely. I never spoke a word to the man. (laughs) I only saw him one time at the ashram, standing far away, course, I knew who he was, because he was a famous actor. Sure. And he was looking quite forlorn. And I now think it's because he was processing the fact that he was terminally ill. But I never spoke to him, never spoke to him. It was all in meditation.
1: Right. So this journey, this spiritual journey. So much of it, yes, you're in upstate New York or Catskills or wherever you are. But truly, it's an internal journey through meditation where you have a whole experience with him. And then you learn that he died shortly thereafter. You felt terribly sad. So what is it about him and you? Do you think that maybe he was prepping for you in
0: some future story that we have yet to hear? (laughs) Well, who knows, Sally? But anyway, (laughs) so that final meditation that I had with the guru in the boat, where he was going to go ahead and create a space for us to be man and wife. And when I learned that he had died, I was actually on safari in Africa. And all of my friends had come to know that I was obsessed with this man. (laughs) I mean, literally, it was crazy. It was all a narrative inside my meditation life. Anyway, I was obsessed with him and I was on safari and found out that he had died. And I felt like my husband had died. That's how sad I was. I mean, come on, that's, that's strange, but it was very real, I was very, very sad. And this guru had such an effect
1: on you. Of course, you wanted to share it. I love that you wanted to share it with your godson, Matt, and his brother. I think you said that it was Vic, your brother, who took you or who took them to the meeting. And you didn't tell us much more about Vic, though. What was going on with your brother during that segment?
0: Well, thank you for asking that question because I'd like to sort of just fill in the story. So, my brother, and we will learn more about him in future. Episode. But he was very cynical about religion. In fact, at one time we were at a family gathering and he called the Bible the greatest comic book ever written. That was the level of his cynicism. So he wanted nothing to do with Gurumai or meeting her. He thought that was stupid. But he loved the Hardin family and he was willing out of the goodness of his heart, to go to Poe Valley, which is 100 miles north of where I lived, pick the boys up and bring them to my house. And he actually also agreed to pick them up and take them back, which was really quite extraordinary. So the day that he was to come fetch the boys, he told us to be in the lobby of the hotel at noon and not a minute later. So he waltzes in, so we 're sitting there with uh, the boys had their sleeping bags and their little backpacks, and in waltzes my brother to pick them up and he said, "Okay, I have to hit the head." so he goes running off to the bathroom and just at that moment, Gurmai emerged from the elevator, the bank of elevators, and walked right over again to the boys and started talking to them, which was astonishing and Then she kept going. She was going to the noon chant, and we were left waiting for Victor. So Vic comes back out of the bathroom, and I said, well, it's too bad you just missed Gourmai. She stopped and talked to the boys. And for the first time, there was a chink in the armor, and he said, I'm sorry I missed that. Wow. (laughs) Wow. But you see, it was, was not his karma in this lifetime to have that spiritual experience.
1: Wow. But your godson, Matt, certainly in his old soulness, got it with his comment when he spent time with her. <laughs> oh, my God. So young to say something like that.
0: When I said, well, what did you think? He said, well, she's certainly a radiant being. My face almost fell into the pizza. <laughs> I went, Where did that come from?
1: <laughs> well, clearly he had a spiritual opening inside him, too. So then, this amazing trip you took to Egypt, a lot of what I was thinking about when I was listening to this segment was I wonder if you hadn't had the experience yet with Michael and you hadn't had the experience yet with this guru. If you maybe would not have been so open spiritually to receiving all that happened to you in Egypt. Oh my God, what
0: a karmic connection. I'm sure you're right about that. Again, I guess we have to conclude here that my life has been a spiritual journey and the arc of my life is now kind of coming to a new plateau, a new place. And so with this evolution from heathen to Christian to follower of a guru and all of those mystical experiences I've had, of course, when I got to Egypt, which is the land of mysticism on steroids, I was very receptive to all those magical things that happened. But Emil also
1: sounded like quite the perfect guide. I mean, on many, many levels. And it's interesting. I mean, you were attracted to him, right? But it was not to be carried
0: out? We had a powerful connection. And he was a really amazing character. He could read spirit energies. He could read people's energy. He was he was on a whole different plane than most anybody I've ever known.
1: But he also seemed very tuned in to you and what you were going through each moment of the way.
0: Yeah, I'm sure we had many, many lifetimes together. And we had this carnal attraction. But we both intuitively knew somehow That wasn't what was meant to be going on here. And Mohammed, his boss, who owned the travel agency, he kept trying to trick us into, you know, trouble. And both of us resisted, which I I think is kind of telling. It's kind of amazing. We didn't ever act out the sex part.
1: Do you regret that?
0: <laughs> oh, Sally. Now you're well, the
1: naughty one. Well, I'm being naughty because in so many of the episodes, even the last one, I think, you shared with us listeners and readers that the times that you did not engage when there was an interaction, you regret that, but not with him. No. <laughs> okay. Absolutely not. It seems like you both seem to know it. It wasn't just you. Yeah, you you both knew. Yeah, we both knew. So then with this small statue that breaks into a thousand Pieces. I think you mentioned something like it actually inspired you to write a young adult novel. You wrote a young adult novel, Pray Do Tell
0: Us More. Yes, 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 yes. So I came home from Egypt and I'd had this experience with Bess, who is a very comical deity in Egypt. Everybody loves Bess. So I have this Bess statue on my desk and I was inspired to write a young adult novel about a young girl named Diana. And her aunt, Cleo, and short for Cleopatra, of course, and they went to Egypt. And Diana was like Emil, she was an energy reader. And the whole story is about how we as human beings truly communicate through vibration, not through words. And that's what the story is about. Mm.
1: Wow. Interesting. Well, maybe that's going to be the sequel podcast after we get through this one. <laughs> and then you actually do end up at Emile's house with his family one evening for dinner. And what an extraordinary moment when the wife stands up and points and tells you you're the beautiful one. What was going on with her? Did you ever figure it out?
0: <laughs> no. I, to this day, I do not know. what. You know, it dawns on me that maybe Emile had said to her, there's one particularly beautiful woman in the group. I mean, that could be it. Or it could be more mystical. It was a weird, strange moment. And I cannot answer your question.
1: But did she say it in a jealous or accusatory way? Or was it just enjoying your beauty? I mean,
0: what was the tone? Well, it was kind of accusatory because she was pointing at me. It could have been construed as a rude gesture you are the beautiful one. So was that accusatory or was it a proclamation? All I can tell you is it was weird, and I don't know the answer to your question.
1: Well, this next doozy you might not know the answer to either, but when you're in the temple of Luxor and you're meditating quietly with the goddess and what you hear is loud laughter that turns out not to be real, but inside you, even though for you it was real. If she was laughing at you, why was she laughing at you, Michelle, is the question.
0: (laughs) It's funny you ask that. I just had an awareness. When I was actually introduced to Guru Mai, the tradition is that somebody takes you up. There's something called darshan, where you get to go up and be before the guru. And the time that I was introduced to Guru Mai, she burst out laughing. And what it felt like at that time was like I had a thousand balloons attached to me and that I was floating up in the stratosphere. It was a joyful laughter. Now, this one was Sekhmet. (laughs) I think given that she was the goddess of war and she was a very powerful deity, I think she was acknowledging the power within me and saying, "Aha, uh-huh, you are a kindred spirit.
1: Like a moment of recognition, almost.
0: Uh-huh. She was acknowledging that I had qualities that she possessed.
1: Mm-hmm. And similarly, when you were then later traveling to the island where the temple for Isis was, and you broke down into sobs, I mean, can you recall what that was about
0: for you? It was so heart-wrenching. I mean, I literally cried for an hour. And it was therapeutic, too, because I was releasing a lot of karma. And I think around the subject, which has been the big subject of my life. Do I get married? Do I not get married? Am I loved? Am I not loved? Am I going to be a mother? Am I not going to be a mother? All of those questions are in the realm of the goddess Isis. So when I'm meditating in this space, she, I guess, just reached in and wrested all of that stuff out of me in a way. It was so powerful. So
1: from what you're saying, it's not negative necessarily. It was actually cleansing or healing.
0: Oh, it was healing. It was hard, but it was healing.
1: And then it almost sounds like you were prepared for the next healing meditation you had in Was it St. Catherine's Monastery? Your burning bush experience, yeah. (laughs) Another one. Another burning bush. Right, well, it was Guru Mai who appeared to you in this one, right? Right, right. And Emil was with you, assuming in your meditation he wasn't sitting with you then, right?
0: No, he and the rest of the group, for the most part, had trucked up the famous mountain where Moses had gone. To get the Ten Commandments. And because of my lung incapacity, I didn't feel I could make that journey. So I was sitting in the courtyard of St. Catherine's Monastery, which literally is where the burning bush still ostensibly lives. So here I am sitting there, and I closed my eyes to meditate, and Gourmay blessed us with this beautiful experience where. She was in her beautiful flowing red robes, and Emile and I were at her feet wearing white, and she blessed us and healed us.
1: Well, the whole journey of this episode is quite enchanting. And there was even a line you said that I'm going to have you tell us a little bit more about, which was, I'm going to see if I can get it right, that the magical mystery and wonder of it all, where the mystical is even more wonderful than the sexual. In ways. Did that remain true for you, or that was really? I mean, you're definitely the arc of your character at this point in your book has really opened in a very different way.
0: I look back on my life to this point, of course. It's been a long number of decades. And I kind of started off like my father as a mini heathen. And then I took on the Christian belief, and that evolved into a much more mystical and meditative state with my relationship with the guru. And I can see that my life has really been about the growth in that area, that spiritual arena. And it doesn't preclude the wonderful sexual encounters. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't diminish any of those experiences. It just expands my experience of life. So when I'm in my best state, my best Michelle-ness, when I look into somebody's face, I see the face of God. I wouldn't be able to say that had I not had this extraordinary spiritual journey that I've been on.
1: Right. And as you said earlier, it's all about love. So we're hearing you're defining and helping us as listeners define love in
0: so many different ways. You're right. This is all about love because that's really what life is about, isn't it? Love. <laughs> Can't wait to hear more, Michelle. I'm loving the journey with you, Sally. It's it's so lovely to have you along for the ride.
1: Lovely to be your camarado.
0: <laughs> Okie dokie, stay tuned, as they say. Thank you for listening to the Love Capades podcast. If you'd like to submit questions, please send them to michelle at lovecapades.com. And that's spelled M-I-C-H-E-L-E at L-O-V-E-C-A-P-A-D-E-S dot com. Also check out our Facebook page and website, both called Love Capades, for fun facts and groovy visual stuff. I am the author, Michelle Musi, and my co-host is Sally Kaplan. The Love Capades podcast is skillfully and playfully produced by StudioPod Media. You can find them at studiopodsf.com.